Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 25 of Control the Coronables. That'll be the last time that I'll say that because myself and John have made the decision with your help to change the name to Control the Controllables moving forward. We set these up originally to energise, educate and entertain you through this difficult period for all. As we start to come onto the other side of it, touch wood, we're moving back into a little bit more normality around the world. And we thought that it was best that we also move with the times with our name. So just, um, it won't affect any of you guys listening, but just if you pass that on, if you're recommending the podcast to anyone, please, please remember that small little thing. Uh, back to this podcast, it's a belter, it's a belter. John Millman, um, as high as 33 in the world ATP, um, he, brings, he brings a brain that is very studious of the game, but the ins and the outs of the game. Um, he's, being, he's played at all levels and he's had to go through those levels on numerous occasions. He's got an outspoken voice, uh, outspoken voice that he is not afraid to, to say how he feels on, on different subjects within the sport. We delve into pretty much every rabbit hole there is to delve into. Um, he's fantastically open, honest, and, and I know you're going to love it. So wherever you are, enjoy. Please do keep letting people know about the podcast. Our next, our next few are really exciting as well. And the plan is to continue with this um, subscribe. It really helps us if you leave a rating, a review uh, through the iTunes website um, or on the app. And, and we really appreciate your support. But now over to John Millman. John Millman, it's an absolute privilege to have you on with Control the Coronables. A big, big thank you from myself and Dan for giving your time up to us today. Oh, not a problem. Uh, you know, a bit of downtime right now here in, in Brisbane, Australia, and uh, more than happy to come on and have a chat. Top man. And uh, just for the listeners, you, you, you need no introduction, but um, I suppose the last time I saw you, I think you might have been 16, 17 or something like that out in Morocco. And you give me an awful hiding and you've come an awful long way since then. Uh, you're, you've got a current ranking of number 43 in the world, a career high of number 33. You've beaten arguably the best player on the planet, Roger Federer, the last 16 of the US Open to put yourself in the quarterfinals. And you had an absolute marathon with him uh, recently at the Australian Open. Once again, big, big thank you for giving your time up to myself and Dan here on Control the Coronavirus. Yeah, not a problem. And uh, what an introduction. <laughs> it, doesn't get, it doesn't get any better than that. John, it's Dan here. You know, lovely, lovely to meet you. The, uh, how, how's things in Australia right now? You're getting, you're getting back on the court and getting back up and running? 
Yeah, look, it was uh, obviously after Indian Wells and, and then Miami getting cancelled. Uh, I made my way back back home to Australia. And um, I think we'll, everyone was in a bit of limbo all around the world as to, to what was going to happen. Uh, luckily, here in Australia, I think because of our location a little bit, um, geographically speaking, you know, we're kind of distanced ourselves from, from the rest of the world, which is a bit tough in tennis terms. But, but to, to manage this virus, it's... Uh, I think it's been advantageous. Um, I think the community as a whole, a lot of Australians, we kind of embrace the the social distancing measures. Uh, It was tough, obviously. It's it's not easy for anyone, but putting it into context with, um, you know, what previous uh, generations have done, it's not the hardest thing to stay at home, but managed to set up a bit of a home gym here. had a couple of really good families here in Queensland that um, kind of donated their, their hard courts. I was in search of a couple of backyard hard courts because public courts got um, shut down. Yep. So um, that's, that was my, my day-to-day. I'd do my home gym. I'd stay fit. Obviously, part of my game is, is keeping a good level of, of physicality. So I want to keep on top of that always. Um, yep. And I enjoy doing that. And um, just keeping my eye in enough. And now some clubs are starting to slowly open. Yeah. But we're still pretty wary here in Australia about the, um, the situation. And um, we don't want this uh, hard work to, to go to waste. No, absolutely. And, and, and are you at the stage where there's talk about internal or domestic competitions happening as well? Yeah, we are. Um, probably early progress. A lot of our state borders, so Australia is made up of states and territories, and, and a lot of our state borders are, are still closed. So it would have to be, uh, um, you know, internal state competitions. Um, at the moment, though, I, I think there's a, everyone's treading a little bit of water just to, to see what happens uh, for the American swing. Um, obviously, the tennis community, the tennis world is is uh, aware of the notice that kind of mid-June, June 15th, I think, they're going to announce if that US Open is going to go ahead, I imagine, with, with strict protocol, um, you know, regulations in place, very strict ones. Yeah. And um, look, from where I am, I think it'll be pretty tricky for that tournament to go ahead. Yeah. I, I don't think they've um, done the best job in America of of kind of controlling the situation there. And, and uh, I just find it perhaps yeah. slightly unlikely that, that we'd be going there and playing. Considering at Indian Wells, there was just the one case in the Coachella region that kind of shut down the whole tournament. So I think it's a little bit of a contradiction if, if they start things back up there yeah. um, for the sake of it. No, actually, and, and John, not to turn this into a political podcast, but it's really interesting hearing how Australia are doing it because you know, I, I'm personally in Spain, you know, John, John's in Ireland, and it, and it feels you know, from the outside, Australia didn't have a whole, a whole lot of cases, but from what you're saying, it's still incredibly strict really in terms, in terms of the movement. You know, and already I think in, in Europe and like you say in America, it feels like they're starting to open quite a few things up, yet the, yet the cases are much higher. So I, I must admit, I'm with you on that. I think it'll be very difficult to make it happen. Uh, but let, let's see. Let's see how it goes. In terms of you know, moving it away from, I suppose, the present moment, you are, I mean, I can't tell you how happy we are to have you on the show because I think you are 
on the men's side, almost the one of the most important stories for people in tennis because of the way that you have um, gone about your career. You know, I think we can look at the Rafael Nadal's and the Roger Federer's who were maybe kind of boy geniuses at the age of 11 or 12, whereas you've put the work in, you've continued going and you've had an incredible career. How did it all start? Well, it started pretty early on, um, but not forced into tennis whatsoever. But I have four sisters, three of them are older, right. and um, they just played social tennis. So they all made state teams, but not taking it too serious. Um, and they would go to a club called Laps Tennis Centre down the road, uh, and they would get the lesson from six o'clock to seven uh, in the morning. And, and I'd get the first 15 minutes actually at 5.45 to six. Um, my parents had a backyard court. We lived out in the bush a little bit. Uh, back then in Brisbane, you know, 45 minutes from the city was considered the bush. Uh, and so I would go down there and, and I just loved the game from, from a young age. I played a, a lot of sports. I, I played a little bit of golf. I um, casually, but I played soccer, uh, football. We, we call it soccer down under because we got so many football codes. And I, and I was a, a very active runner also. So I was brought up in a very um, active family. Both my parents are uh, school teachers, but specifically um, physical education teachers. Okay. So there was this big emphasis on, on being outside and, and staying active. Uh, my love for tennis grew. I think from a young age, I, I was pretty good. And I think you're, you're attracted to things that, that, that you're good at. But also, when, when I say pretty good, it's a pretty... Uh, small pond down here and and you know i was good in in my my little region uh when things started to to get probably a, a little more focused with the tennis it was probably when i hit high school uh just because i ran out of hours in the day it was yeah. something that my parents being school teachers really encouraged that you know i get my education and and probably with the with the tennis side of things um it was kind of on hold for for a fair chunk of time from probably 12 to to 17 years right. old, I, I was never really in, um, uh, never really touted as probably being um, one of the, the talents. So therefore, I was in some state squads, but not necessarily touted as being, you know, uh, someone that's going to, to make waves in the sport or, or develop into a, a good player, I guess. Uh, so I did all my schooling and, and, um, and just really did enough to kind of keep my eye in before I started taking it a lot more serious. And do you think that, do you think that on reflection, do you think that now helps you or has helped you in your career that you weren't perceived to be a talent? So, you know, I guess your, your game is built on humility, you know, hard yep. work, you know, those sort of things. Do you think that helped you when you were younger not having that? I think there's definitely some things that, that I can take away from it that, I look back and I learned certain skills during that time because my hours on court were, were very much reduced. You know, I'd do one kind of QAS session with Jeff Masters a week. I'd do three, three school tennis sessions, one more private with uh, Milton Rothman or Gary Stickler and then play a couple bit of fixtures on the weekend. So really it was probably uh, seven, eight hours of tennis a week, which uh, in comparison with a lot of my peers um, was very much on the, the, the small side, as you know, yeah. Uh, a lot of players these days, and even back then, you know, going back, uh, what, 13, 14 years ago, uh, they play that junior circuit like the pro circuit. You know, they're, they're full-time players. They might do a bit of distance education, but 
but really their days are, are clocking in hours, doing a lot of travel, um, not just regional, but, but internationally too. Um, some of the things I picked up there was I really did make a conscious effort of um, every time I stepped on the court, I knew uh, it was during a lunch break at school, followed on by maybe a free period or whatever. So every time I stepped on the court, I, I tried to bring a, a competitiveness and a, and a real intensity yeah. um, to my training sessions. And I feel like because I kind of had taught myself to, to operate at a good intensity, and, and back it up day after day, when I started to increase the hours on court, I started to see a, a lot more uh, quicker improvement. And that helps also in tournaments too, because as you know, to get your ranking up, you've got to be winning futures events and then winning challenger events. And yeah. you've got to be, you can't be winning one round at, at, these, at these events and then bombing out and not putting in a good performance the next day because you just don't accumulate enough points. Yeah. So I think that that actually really helped me to, to be able to turn around and even though it was a, a reduced amount of time to bring a, a level of intensity and, and that's actually a real skill to be able to do. I feel, I feel like that's how you make improvement every day when you're working out, when you're on the court, um, doing a training session, you're trying to, to, to give it a hundred percent. And if you start going through the motions, I think these bad habits start forming. I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. In the, in the school holidays and that, I'd play some tournaments, I'd play some ITFs and, and I'd win some. I've won a nationals event. So I, didn't, I, I had that belief in myself that once I could um, play tennis more serious, um, that I was matching it with my peers, at least in Australia. And we had some very good Australian juniors, some top 10 players there. Yeah. And um, I did feel as if I wasn't too far off their level whatsoever. And I felt as if I had a fair bit of upside. And... and and, and then that's one thing I've learned over the time. And, and there were times, especially early on, when you start on the pro circuit and ev everything seems a little overwhelming and a little daunting because you start to realize how big the yeah. world is and how many players play it. Because in Australia, you're in this bubble. We don't get to go off and play European indoor tournaments and get exposed um, you know, to, to, the, to the amount of players that are there. Um, I feel as if... Um, Along the way, every now and again, you, you do um, lose that confidence within yourself. And, and I found out um, that your biggest supporter has to be yourself. You have to be the biggest fan of yourself. And I'm not trying to say that in an arrogant way, but um, there's going to be plenty of detractors along the way. And people, you might not make programs. You might not get funding because you're missing out on, um, on uh, you know, other people are touted to be bigger names in your federation. Um, there's going to be a lot of times that, that, that give you the opportunity to, to, to listen to that noise in the background and, and to start doubting yourself. But I really do believe that you have to be your biggest supporter. And that's something that I learned and, and something that's really helped me um, progress through my career. Johnny, it's, a, it's amazing to listen to that you, you did so few hours at the at the beginning and uh, when you were when you were kicking off and but like i mean i think you got top 90 top 80 in the world juniors was there a moment when you were a junior that yeah was there a breaking point that you felt i i really want to step things up uh, can you remember that time when you yeah. wanted to really pick your your hours let's say up on 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 a training front and take things more seriously oh definitely i was um i remember i was 15 and uh 
I was at a school called Brisbane Grammar School, one of the, um, you know, the elite um, high schools here, a private high school. And they're, but they're very academic focused, at least they were back then. And um, they were telling me I had to do, normally you do senior over two years. So you get your overall position. We call it an OP here in Queensland where you can get into university and that. And normally that takes two years. And they said, the only way you'll take, get time off school is if you do that over three years. Because I'm thinking, you know, I need to get some time off. I need to play a bit of tennis. I want to play tennis. I see my peers and, and I see that they're all doing it and, and I'm falling behind. And, and, you know, you have pipe dreams as a kid. And, and I think also um, because you just don't know, you feel you, there's, a, a, there's a heightened level of importance. And, you know, winning a match at 15 is the be all and end all, which when you look back now, it's, it's probably not that important. But definitely thought that that was a moment where um, I had to kind of change things up. But again, my parents, school teachers, um, they actually inquired about a, another school, Anglican Church Grammar School, another great school that had a pretty decent tennis program too, run by Ian Malpass here. And they were a lot more flexible. They were more understanding of my situation. They gave me more periods off during the day. And I think that really helped. However, having said this, I look back now and um, I feel as if I'm a big believer that tennis is, is constantly evolving. Um, tennis, what it was 15 years ago, is at a different place, what it is now. And um, whether that's technology, um, people are, uh, are getting more out of their game. Uh, I just feel like it's constantly improving and evolving. And I feel as if if you don't get on that path and, and continually improve also, you're going to, to fall behind. So what I'm saying is, is 15 years ago when I was at school and doing these limited hours, I'm not necessarily um, confident that if I was doing, if I was 15 years old right now and, and, and going back and, and doing that same program, I'm not as confident that I would have had the same success as what I have today because I feel as if um, it's more professional now. I feel as if it's, it's, um, we're at a different stage now. And, and I feel as if I probably did need more hours nowadays than I did back then um, as a youngster. But I got away with it then because I, um, I don't feel as if um, it was quite as important. However, my, my mindset has changed um, from them. And I think that's really important when you've got uh, people making um, decisions, let's say on federations with funding, uh, let's say academies and how they're structuring their, their programs. I feel as if sometimes uh, people get caught in the trap of thinking back to what they were doing back in the day and thinking, oh, well, that's good enough to, to what you can do in, in, in the present, in the current day. You, you kind of um, yeah. get a bit uh, one-tracked in the mind as to what you were doing is sufficient now. Well, I would disagree with that. I feel as if you have to constantly evolve your thinking um, to mirror what's happening in the game. Very, very good. It's very, very good. It's great insights. Great listening to that, John. It is. It's amazing. And, and as you're talking, there's like, there's so many different little holes to go down because you, you open up so many great points, John, you know, and I, and I think one thing that again hits me with you, but in, in tennis in general is players tend to be on trajectories from quite an early age, you know, and, and, and I guess whichever way we look at it, 
there's not that many players that completely change their trajectory. As much as we like to think that our kid's an outlier and we think that these sort of things. So if, when we look at yours, but I started digging a bit more on you because I think people see you as, or the perception can be, oh, John Millman, he's a journeyman, he's done this and he's done... And then you go, well, he was only 84 in the world as a junior. However, when I looked a little bit further, after only two and a half years on the tour, you were already 200 in the world. You know, so age 20, you're 200 in the world. Listening to what you're saying, you didn't play many ITFs. So, you, so the ranking itself, okay, maybe if you'd played 30 ITFs a year, 80 is not so special. But, but it seems as if actually you were on a trajectory in your, own, in your own way. Did you believe in that? And at what age did you truly believe, do you know what? this is a sport for me that I'm going to go and have a, have a proper career. Yeah, look, I, 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 I guess what gave me a little bit of belief was when I looked at how I was going every now and again, you, you know, in school holidays, I'd either go off and play maybe an ITF. And like you said, I probably only played, I reckon probably the maximum amount of ITFs I played in a year during my junior career would have been maybe eight, I, I think, at a maximum. I tried to just do the calculations in my head then and it, it wouldn't have normally been Normally in that. Australia. Normally in Australia. As yeah, well. in Australia, the, New Zealand, I went and played one. I played one in New Caledonia, you know, these, and a couple in Australia because I, didn't, I, I couldn't go and get on a flight and go to Europe. First of all, I didn't have the money because I wasn't necessarily touted as, I wasn't getting it paid for by the Federation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was paying for these trips too and, my parents had forked out a fair bit to send my sisters and myself to private schools, I tell you. Yeah. And, um, and number three, I didn't have the time because, you know, I had to go back and I had to, to study and I had to, to get that education. Uh, so but I, I did notice that when I went back and played a national event or when I did play an ITF event and some of my peers who, you know, were doing it full time and, and were in all the programs, when I played against them, I was more than competitive, I felt. So I did have that belief, definitely, but there was still a lot that I didn't know. I didn't really have an education in tennis. So I didn't really know what was out there and I wasn't exposed to it. And I think that's a, you know, a trap you can fall into and, and a trap that some of our players do fall into here in Australia yeah. is, is the unknown. You're, we're on an island so far away from the rest of the world and you don't realise how big the game is. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I first went overseas and, um, and it was daunting. It was super daunting just to see the amount of players that were out there. I went to America to begin with and I actually, that's when I had my first shoulder surgery. I came back and so I had to start again. And, and then I was in uh, Europe. I spent a fair bit of time in Europe, uh, Morocco. Yeah. Uh, and and I remember I was, I was in Spain I, I, after I had my shoulder surgery. I, so I would have been like 18 at the time, 18. And I went to Spain and there were 128 draw qualifying for a $10,000 $10, future. And I'm telling you, Todd Reed, the late Todd Reed, um, he was there playing qualifying. He's a guy that I looked up to. He got to about 101 in the world and he's playing four rounds of qualifying there. Yeah. And I'm seeing some of these Spanish guys and, and – I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, like I am so far, I'm in the deep water here. I'm in the deep end, you know? Um, it was tricky. And, and there was definitely moments there where I've gone, wow, you know, this is different. This is a different kettle of fish entirely now. 
So look, there were definitely times where there was a, a lot of self-doubt. And I liken my tennis to a career to a bit of an, an apprenticeship, like a trade that we do here in Australia. So um, I had to go and kind of learn my trade because I didn't really do that as a junior. Yeah. So I'd go and play these future events and, and to begin with, I'd be losing in qualifying of the future events. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, this, this level's too good. It's too strong. You know, do I belong here? Yeah. And eventually in matches and you'd qualify and then, and then you start doing well in futures and you start going, okay. And then that whole education would start again in challenges. Yeah. You'd start doubting yourself when you started playing qualities of challenges or early round challenges and, and start thinking to yourself, wow, like this is another step up again. Like, what am I going to do? Like, and it's about being comfortable. It's about exposing yourself in, in uncomfortable situations until you become comfortable. And I think that um, I was very good at, um, at being resilient. A lot of the time I was traveling by myself. Um, for the majority of the time, my dad went on one trip after I had my shoulder surgery with me. But for the rest of the time, I was by myself and I was doing it off pretty much no money. That's why I had to play club tennis in Germany and Switzerland. And, and when you're playing for, for literally a night to sleep, um, you have to really have love for the game you have to really love it you have to be resilient because there were plenty of times and look i'm not crying crying poor here and i'm not trying to big myself up here because 90 percent of the tour and that's why i'm very outspoken on these levels of the tour 90 percent of the tour are doing it super tough so sleeping on floors of train stations and airports is actually not uncommon you know it sounds brutal but it's not uncommon that when you're you know uh, on the other side of the world and you're playing for, for a night's accommodation, I mean, that's a big thing. So you have to be resilient. You have to, um, you, you, you have to push, be able to push yourself along. You have to have love for the game, but you have to have that belief because if you stop believing, it doesn't become all that fun, you know, sleeping on floors of train stations. You know, if, if you don't think that you can get to that end game, um, and, and, and that, those grand slams, what you dreamed of as playing as a kid, because you don't dream of playing in the middle of Romania in Patesh. You know, you don't dream of that. You dream of playing Santa Court Wimbledon. Absolutely. So if you lose track of that and you stop that belief, and there's plenty of times where I've doubted myself, that there's no doubt, but I've been resilient enough to turn that around um, quickly. And I think that bounce back effect has really helped me um, throughout my career. And, and also, it's helped me progress through those tournaments. Often we see players stagnate at future level or at challenger level. And um, I think along the way, they get comfortable at a certain level. And the uncomfortable part is something that uh, they're not totally convinced they, um, they want to go down that dark hole. Very good. And, and, you, and you touch on it there. And it's obviously one thing we'd love to talk about today listening to you speak john it's it's very clear you are you are connected to all levels of the sport you know yep. because, of, because of how how your journey has gone so what what is the answer obviously it's come up over the last few weeks you know the conversations come up but i know it's something that you've been a big advocate for a long time what is the solution to make to make our sport a possibility for more people I wish, I wish I had the solution. Really, I do. Um, and I think I've, 
I've lived and breathed it multiple times at all levels, futures, challenges, ATP tournaments. Um, I've had to do that because um, it's, it took me a little longer to crack it. Yeah. Um, but also I had to do it because I got injured a lot. I had two shoulder surgeries, the second one really significant, yeah. where I was actually working in the city back home in, in, in Brisbane because I didn't think I was going to play again. Wow. And I had a groin surgery too. So each time I've had to kind of start and go through that process again and, and go back playing futures, playing for a hundred bucks, yeah. um, playing challenges yeah. and um, then finally graduating to, to, to the, to the ATP tour. So look, I, I don't have the answer, but I, I, I believe quite simply that obviously there has to be a, a better dispersal of, of, of prize money. That's for sure. Um, I, I believe that there should be multiple tours. I think that there should be, um, like they do in the golf, I think there should be a European tour. I think there should be an Asian tour. I think there should be an American tour. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily, I think the sport is big enough to do that. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that, that in a sport that has the popularity that tennis does, uh, I don't believe that it should be 100 players making money. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the most played sports globally. I think that we do a very poor job of, of selling the rest of the tour. You look at social media and every single day, you know, I follow the Instagram channels and every single day, every post is about the same players. And look, there's a reason for that. They bring in the money, they bring in the sponsorship. I get that. But I don't think that we do a good job at all of, of telling the stories of, of guys who are, um, on the challenger circuit of telling the, the stories of the, of the guys who are at futures and celebrating tennis and, and, and the, the corners of the globe that it's played in. I don't think we do a good enough job of that. Um, so therefore, how can, can people relate to, to a journeyman story? I think that we do a very poor job sometimes in commentary at Grand Slams. I think the ATP commentators are great and I've worked with them. Your Robbie Koenigs, you know, Pecci's, I think that they're world-class. Um, Leicester's, you know, they're great. Yeah, but I, I, I can't stand when I'm hearing some of the commentators at Grand Slams, like a Johnny Mack or someone. And literally, I heard at the, I think it was the US Open. It was US Open or Australian Open, one of them. And um, Johnny Mack was, was calling Lloyd Harris uh, a battler journeyman. And Lloyd Harris is 22 years old and he's top 100. Like, uh, he's a phenomenal player. And, and I've seen them call people that who are, who are 20, 30 in the world. Yeah. Like, I, I think that it's lazy. I think it's lazy commentary. And I don't think that it sells the game in its best light. I don't think it sells tennis in its best light. Um, for the average person that's just the average um, knowledgeable tennis, tennis knowledgeable person that's tuning in, they listen to that and they have no other idea. Whereas we should be celebrating stories like Sumit Nagal when he's playing at the Australian Open and, and, and where he's going and, and where he's had to play to get there. We should be selling these stories. And I think that we do a very, very, very poor job of doing that. So how are we going to grow the tour and how are we going to get more people interested in guys, a greater number of players isn't, um, isn't being showcased right now because we should be celebrating them more. We should be, advertising them more um and the and the tours not just the atp tours should be done more in a more professional way god you, okay. speak, you speak so well <laughs> Dan, I was just, sorry. 
it really, it's gone, John. Sorry, Dan, I had to jump in there with you. That was, it's unbelievable to listen to that. Unbelievable to listen to that. Now, I'm just, I'm thinking it from here, from an Irish context, that here in our little island here, and I was only saying it to, to one of my colleagues yesterday that, you know, like that, majority, 99% of the, the, the population here only know Djokovic and Federer or um, Nadal, and that's it. And it's for all those reasons that you've just spoke about there. It's so true. It's so right. Um, it's just, and it's great listening to you talk like that, John. Yeah, well, it's an easy story to sell, isn't it? The, the Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer because of their worldwide appeal. And I think it, it, it's a harder, it, it is, it takes a little bit more research and it takes a little bit more um, attention to detail to sell the other stories. But there's plenty of stories there. Um, but I think it, it requires um, the desire to do so. And right now, I think that, that we really lack that. And, and I hear it on a, you know, every time at a tournament, uh, you know, I'll be able to point out times where um, maybe a bit of disrespects there and, and, a, and, and a lack of knowledge, even from our knowledgeable people, yeah. um, meant to be knowledgeable people in the game. And, and I think that that does a disservice to, to our sport in general, because like I said, we, we play a global sport. We're so lucky to play a global sport. We're so lucky to have um, a global audience and, and stories from all over, over the world. Uh, we've just got to find a way to, to, better, um, to, te to better tell them. We've got to be better storytellers. Very good. It actually, they announced yesterday, I think Forbes magazine announced yesterday, I don't know if you guys saw it, but now tennis has the, the highest paid players on the female and um, male athletes in the world in Roger Federer and I think Naomi Osaka, you know, which, which only strengthens that, that comment that you, you make, exactly that. We're in, a, we're in a global sport that at the very, very high end is, is producing players that are, that, are, that are bringing in more earnings than any other sport in the world. That's how big tennis is. Yet, somebody like yourself, John, at currently 43 in the world. In the tennis world, we very much know you, but, but maybe you know, people outside of tennis wouldn't have heard of John Milton. Yet, what an unbelievable career you've had and what an unbelievable story you've had. And like you say, you wouldn't use yourself as the example. There is lots more examples of that. So I think the way that you've put that is incredibly good. And, and for those listening, John, because the other, the other thing, and we have done, some research into you. Hopefully we haven't been as lazy as, as some of the people out there. You know, in 2017, you know, you pretty much played, played a full year of challenges, you know, and probably coming back from an injury. Yep. And then in May 2018, you lost in the first round of a challenger in Germany. In August 2007, 2018, three months later, you beat Roger Federer <laughs> to make it to the quarterfinals of US Open. You know, yep. and, and, and it's stories. The other one that comes to mind for me is the doubles guys. Is it um, Kravitz and Weiss or, you know, those guys yep. who I think they lost in the first round of the Futures and then yep. three months later they won the US Open. For, for those listening who don't understand, how close is the level between a 500, 600 guy and a, and a, and a 30 in the world guy? And, and what are the main differences? Yeah, look, I... I, I... I do believe that 
there's not a, a stack of difference. You know, a player, when, when you have... The beauty of tennis is you start off at zero all. And if you have a, an unbelievable day, even, you know, if you're well outside 100, you can definitely match it with a guy inside 100 because the level's so close. Yeah. You know, I, I, you have to battle your way through. It's no easy feat um, coming back from, say, an injury, having time off, and then having to battle through futures and challenges again because... And that's why I'm a big believer that you have to keep on improving your game. Otherwise, the game goes past you. And other guys who are outside the 100 will catch up and they'll, they'll go past you. Um, so I'm definitely a, you know, a massive believer. I'm, I also think you've got to... I think one of the big differences is, is, is turning up week in, week out. Yeah. Um, because you have to be consistent. You're going to lose first-round matches. That happens. Yeah. But you have to be consistent week in, week out, doing the right processes, doing, being professional uh, week in, week out. And they can't just be one-off weeks because you won't build up a ranking like that. And so I think that that's probably where a guy who's 400, 500, yeah. to make that next step to get to 200 and then the next step again, I always used to do it in progressions. Yeah. And then the next step again to break into that 100. It's that consistency of turning up week in, week out not getting disheartened by poor results, but, but being able to, to turn up the next week and go again, because that's tough. Really, it's tough. You're on the road for, you, you're three months into a trip, you're tired, uh, you kind of want to go home, you want to get back to your local little cafe, your local coffee shop. You have to be resilient and then you, you still have to, to keep, in, keep, keep in sight in your mind, you know, what this is all for. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's probably a big thing, that consistency week in, week out and, and, and turning up to work every day. Yeah. Um, and it's easier said than done. It's by, no means e it's by no means easy. And I think it's actually a skill in itself. We always talk about all little things. Oh, what are your weapons? Um, and, and when you look at tennis, you know, you might say, oh, Juan Carlos Ferrer, what a forehand, you know, a great forehand. Gonzalez, what a forehand. Oh, Nick Kyrgios, what a serve. Um, everyone has these, these weapons and it's easy to point out shots as your weapons. Yeah, yeah. Um, but mentally, how tough is he? How resilient is he? Um, what level can he bring day in, day out? These are other little weapons that, um, that really can help you throughout your career. I think we lose track a little bit of that. I think sometimes we just see what's, what's on the paper, what's there in front of our eyes but dive a little deeper and, and work out um, what strengths you possess. And it's not just the ones that you see on the TV. There's so many other uh, little areas that you can maximize um, to get the most out of your game. And I think probably some guys aren't doing that right now. Yeah, no, very good. And I think, yeah, I mean, the big serves, it's very tangible, isn't it? You know, yeah. the, the mental toughness is, it's quite hard to touch it. <laughs> it's quite hard yeah. to see. And I hope what I say next is, is a compliment. Um, yep. uh, it's, it's meant as a compliment, very much so. I know you're a big Liverpool fan. Yes. Um, and I'm going to liken you to James Milner. You yep. know, it's somebody who, you know, is, is, I mean, I'm a big Newcastle fan and I know how reliable he was even at Newcastle. Yep. How, how have you created that? Because that, exactly what you say, it is a massive, massive, massive attribute in life not just in tennis. Yep. What have your kind of daily habits been and your, your key values that you've stuck to 
that have enabled you to just keep going along this journey every single day? Because yep. not many people do it. It's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, look, there's probably a couple of things. Uh, probably the biggest thing that I've, that I've lived by and probably you're spot on with, with James Milner because I think that, you know, if, if you were having a chat with him, um, I'm sure he could relate to this, is, is something that's driven me and what even drove me, especially after my, my shoulder surgery. I was about, my second shoulder surgery, I was about 1.30 in the world. And the year before, I'd had about four months um, um, uh, of club tennis. And I wasn't going to play that this year because I saw it as a real opportunity, defending no points to make that top 100. And something that, you know, drove me through that process even and has driven me my whole life is is I'm constantly competing against myself and and the the thing is for me is I didn't stop then and I probably was close to stopping there were a lot of stop starts and there were a lot of times I doubted myself but I felt as if I hadn't maximized my potential and that's what drives me every single day to to maximize my potential if I feel as if uh, let's say you're squeezing a lemon and you want to get all the juice out of it. I just want that. And if I can finish my career and the juice is, is dry from that lemon, then, you know, I'll be as happy as Larry because I think that that is, is the greatest um, justice that you can do to yourself yeah. is to milk the well clean of, of, of your ability, get the most out of your game. And look, the top guys are, are freaks and, and um, when you're a kid, you grow up and you, you want to win grand slams. You know, you're, you're six, seven years old and you want to win grand slams. That's what you're thinking. Oh, I'm going to win Wimbledon. Um, and when you get older, you, your goals change a little bit because you start, you know, realism kicks in and, and you still want to have those dreams. There's no, no doubt. And when you're going on a run at the US Open and you're in the quarterfinals and you've just beaten Roger, you know, you, anything's possible. So there's still dreams. You still, you still got a dream and you still got to dream big. But for me, the most important thing that, that I can do in my career is to maximize my potential. And if I do that, I can be pretty happy when all's said and done. And I think I'm well on the way of doing that. So I've always looked for, I think with that, you're always looking then for little improvements in your game. Yeah. Um, when you're working out and you're doing hill sprints, you're trying to get a little bit more out of your game. When you're doing the boring little prehab and rehab exercises, you're doing it knowing that this is so boring and it's tedious and yeah. I'm not loving it because you don't love that type of stuff. Yeah. But you do it knowing that if I do do these little things, you know, that, that's maybe a, a 0.1 of a percent that I'm going to be getting out of my game. So I think that that holds you in really good stead. So if, 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 if anyone's listening, I think that, um, and to take away anything, that's the biggest thing that, that I've done always is I, I've had that in my mind. Every day when I wake up, I want to be just the best version of myself and I want to, I want to squeeze that lemon dry. And if I can do that, I'll be pretty happy. Very good. Cl- class to listen to, absolutely class and class for kids and that are listening into this podcast to, to, to listen to that advice. When I was growing up, Johnny, uh, I had a, a big idol of mine was Leighton Hewitt. Yeah. Uh, and for some reason, when I when I listen to you and I look at you, there's just the there there's idiosyncrasies there that remind me of that kind of character. Uh, did Leighton 
they, was he an idol or was he a role model of yours growing up? That type of mentality, the way you're talking about it here, that resilience, did, did that help in that, having a, a guy like that in your country? I think early on for any Queenslander, um, it was Paddy Rafter because Paddy Rafter, Harold from Queensland, we play completely different games. I wish he taught me how to volley. Um, but Paddy Rafter was someone we all looked up to. But then as I got a bit older and I started to um, start not marrying my game, but starting to, to look at certain players and how they went about business, someone like Leighton was obviously in the forefront of my mind, being Australian and, and the way he went about business. He, his tenacity, his will to win, his desire... And, and the way he loved engaging in a battle. And, and that's part of tennis. I think as a kid, you've got to enjoy competition. Um, because if you don't enjoy competition, tennis isn't for you. And that's fine. Not everyone. It's not for everyone. But Leighton was someone that when he walked on the court, you could just tell he just wanted to get into, into a battle. He wanted to get into a fight. He was ready to go. And I've been super lucky to actually... Um, get to know Leighton the more my career has gone on obviously he's our Davis Cup captain and the Davis Cup is, is an environment I absolutely love being a part of and thrive upon and not just Leighton there but you know one of his mentors Tony Roach um, is a part of the setup and and Roachy is someone that should get a hell of a lot more credit than what he does here in Australia you know he's obviously well respected but he's done more for for tennis in Australia than I think anyone I know so um, being in those environments and, and learning off these guys is, I mean, you can't put a, you can't put a dollar figure on it. It's, 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 uh, it's amazing. And yeah, look, someone like Leighton, just the way he operated, um, we talk about someone who got the most out of his game. I think, that's, I think that's Leighton, you know? And people forget just how good Leighton was because he cracked it at such a young age. Um, but he was, I mean, what a competitor. I think he'll go down as probably the, one of the best competitors that, that this game's ever had. And, and I think that that's one of the biggest compliments. If, if, if I was speaking to him today, um, I'm sure, I reckon he would take that as, you know, one of the biggest compliments that, that you could give him. So um, I've been very lucky to, to be exposed into that environment. There's no greater honour than playing for, for your country. And... To do it when Leighton's on your bench, um, someone that you greatly admire, and Tony Roach is, is on, the, on the bench just behind the bench, um, is something that is, uh, you don't forget that. And, and for the rest of my life, long past I played tennis, there'll be the moments that I've probably enjoyed nearly the most in my career. And, and on that, it's, it always hits me with the Aussies. And I know there's been there's been a couple of turbulent times in recent times with a couple of couple of the players, but I even see it. You know, I was at all the challenger events last year with a couple of players in Ilkley and Surbiton, and and what really hit me, the Aussies are always supporting each other. You know, so you'd be you, you know you might be you know it could be anyone. It might be Alex Bolt on the court. It might be, and you can almost guarantee you kind of see the rest of the Aussies congregating somewhere. You know, and I think that's something quite special that you guys have. You know, I know it's something I really try to bring to the academy that it is an individual sport, but can we create a team environment? You know, is that something that you feel as an Aussie? And, and even at the level that you're playing at, obviously now at the high end of ATP, is that something that the Aussies still even do at that level as well? 
Yeah, look, I think it's, um, I think a little bit probably stems down to the fact that when, from an early age, when you start traveling, um, Australians are in it for the long haul. Like we have to go away for three, four months. Yeah. I've, I think my longest trip was maybe six months, um, maybe a bit longer. So I think, um, when you have to go away and a lot of the times you're by yourself, it's kind of nice to see a familiar face. Um, and, and you can make friends, international friends, that's for sure. But as you know, um, everyone's cultures are a little bit different. And, and when you, when you, when you come from, um, Australia, you know, you just think you get bought up as an Australian. So you, so you think maybe just you're, you're on the same wavelength, yeah, yeah. I, I should say. So look, I think, it, I think that that probably stems from there. And I, and it's been a really big effort from someone like a Leighton who's, who's really tried to, to drive this, this team culture since he's, um, since he's retired. And I think it's really important because like you touched on, it is an individual sport, but it's a hell of a lot easier to, to have that support when you're on the road um, and to, to, to have your mates when you're on the road. I'm starting to get a little bit older now and, and that generation below me um, is, you know, they got brought up playing AIS together. So they were living together, your, your Balties and, and Duckworths and, um, you know, all of these guys, Tomos and Kigs and all that. Um, a lot of my guys, unfortunately, aren't playing tennis anymore because in, in, in Australia, um, it is a big sacrifice. You, you don't go home. You are making sacrifice. I think we see our country having a rich federation because we have a Grand Slam. They don't realise at times how much of a sacrifice it is as an Australian tennis player. Nice. So it's unfortunate. The only player my, my age who's still playing, well, we got two, but Bryden defected to, to Great Britain. So the only other person's JP Smith. So yeah, obviously yeah. when we're at tournaments and, and Smithy's there, you know, he's someone that yeah. I, I love hanging out with. Um, it's unfortunate that people my age, uh, you know, I, I thought we had a really good age of tennis players uh, and a talented group, but, uh, it just, we saw them peter out and we saw them probably not give enough time there, but definitely I think we, they've done a good, really good job of building a culture. And it's something that I think we have to continue to strive to do because, um, I want to see people look at myself, uh, Australians look at myself and say, well, Johnny's in the top hundred, you know, why can't I? And I've always been a big believer, especially in federations, I think sometimes we want the gold lotto ticket. We want to punch the lottery ticket and, and we want to shoot for the guy that's going to win multiple grand slams. We want to shoot for Federer's, but I think that those are the types of people that actually can do it by themselves, you know, obviously with support, but they're going to, regardless of what path they take, um, they're going to find their way because, you know, they, I believe, and I've always been a big believer and, and sometimes that belief hasn't been mirrored in um, the decision makers, but I've always believed in strength in numbers. Yeah. I believe that if we can get um, 30 players in the top 200, um, then, you know, natural progression suggests that, you know, we might get 15 guys in the top 100 because I think that together we can push ourselves along. So I would love people. And I hope people do here in Australia, look at myself and say, Oh, Johnny, he, he can be a top hundred player. Why can't I, you know, I think that that's the mentality and the culture that we need to have. And I, I believe that that's 
um, how we're going to get the most success out of tennis in this country. Oh, definitely. And, and, and it's actually, it's something I've been in Spain for 10 years now. It is something I think they've done really well in Spain, yep. particularly in the men's game. You know, yep. it's, you know, you do see, and you genuinely do, you see Rafa giving a lot back. Obviously, he's got his yep. own academy. You know, you see, I mean, even just where I am, all of a sudden, David Ferrer's playing against Juan Carlos Ferrero and, and doing yep. clinics. And, you know, there's, there's lots that they've done over the years to do that. And the, and the point I always pick up on, I remember um, Kyrgios mentioned this, that there was a WhatsApp group that you guys had maybe set up through Davis Cup. And I, get, yep. I don't know if it was one of the ones he won in Mexico or somewhere. But, you know, he commented on it every day. It was all of a sudden to get the text messages from the boys, felt something as simple as that, you yep. know, he felt like he was playing with a little bit more purpose. And yep. we can't have you on here without, ask, without asking you about Nick Kyrgios. So what's, yep. it, what's it been like to, to get to know Nick and spend time with Nick? He's someone I've got a lot of time for, but I know sometimes he's a bit misunderstood. Yeah, look, Nick's, I mean, it's easy to see that he's one of the most talented guys that we have in the sport. I mean, um, what he can do is, is incredible. Yeah. Um, I believe Nick probably gets a little bit of a hard time of it because I think that, and he'll admit himself, sometimes he, he lets himself go in a match and, and he'll be the first to admit it in the, in the, in the locker rooms that, you know, wasn't good enough. Yeah. Um, but I think that we also don't see all the work that he does off the court. Now, he, he does a tremendous amount of work for his community, especially there in Canberra. Yeah. Uh, he's got, you know, the Nick Kyrgios Foundation that I think uh, the journalists sometimes will go for the easy story when, yeah, yeah perhaps he, he's let himself down a little bit on the court, but they forget sometimes to report on the good stuff that he's doing off the court. So I really do feel as if um, you can't just judge a character sometimes by what they can or cannot do, you know, in their sport, but, but judge them as a whole, judge them, you know, as the person they are. And, and Nick's doing a tremendous job in that respect. So look, Nick will always have my support there. Yeah. yeah he can get a bit more out of his game and, 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 and he knows that. And, and I don't think that I, you know, I think that the best of Nick Kyrgios is, is still to come. And I think that, yeah. you know, like anyone, we all have our strengths and weaknesses and I figure he's still figuring out his yeah, and, yeah. and you have to work on your weaknesses and it's good that you have weaknesses. My coach used to say back in the day, you know, I'd be complaining that I can't hit some certain shot or something hasn't been working. And he'd say, but John, you're 200 in the world right now. Imagine if you had no more improvements to make, you know, like you'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? Yeah. And, and, I, and I look at that and I go, you know you what, you're right. And, and Nick can make improvements and therefore I think that we still can see the best out of Nick. Yeah. Um, but what he brings to the game and, and, and um, uh, the fact that people will line up to see him play, I think that you can't put a price on that. And I know that tennis is doing as much as they can to, to keep him around 100% because the ATP know how valuable he is and that's why... Yeah. You know, right now he's 40 in the world. We all know he can be a lot higher than that. But that's why he's got pretty good endorsement deals and yeah. uh, because people like watching Nick. And I think at the end of the day, tennis is an entertainment sport. Yeah. You know, tennis is entertainment. We, our sport's in a lot of trouble if we stop entertaining people because people won't come and watch it. People won't be watching on TV. 
We won't be bringing in any money in sponsorships because they want to be associated with things that are entertaining. Yeah. And Nick, whatever you say about Nick, he's entertaining. And, you know, I'll, I'll tune in and watch Nick's matches because you, you yeah. just don't know what to expect for him yeah. from him. As will, you know, tennis fans all over the world. And he can rub people up, up the wrong way, but I think we do need personalities in the game. We can't all be the same. We can't all be as refined or polished uh, because then it becomes a little bit boring. So yeah. I'm all for characters expressing themselves. Um, there's a line and you don't necessarily want to see them cross it. And, and every now and again, when someone does cross it, uh, you know, they have to pull their head in a little bit. But I, I believe that we're in an entertainment business and you can't all be the same bland product. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with 2019 Wimbledon, I was there with a player was very much at work and as you know when you're there you're not you're not necessarily there to watch other matches but there was one ticket that I made sure I got and it was Rafael Nadal against Nick yeah. Curry. that was sure. that, you know that was that was the match that you know I made sure that I I got my center court ticket for and and I actually think on on your point about I'm completely with this point that you know, it's about making lots of rich people and maybe one becomes a millionaire, you know, rather yep. than trying to just make that one millionaire. Yep. I think there's a massive opportunity in Australia right now because Nick Kyrgios is opening doors that not many people in this world are able to open, you know, which, yep. whichever way we look at it, he is, he is cool, you know, and it's, yep. it's, it's opened up a different vision of what a tennis player can, can be. Um, you know, obviously, I wish him a lot of success, and you know, I think us Australian tennis can be all the better for it. Yeah, um, for sure. Shift gears a little bit, John. I'm, we fought, we've fallen into this conversation with you because it's it's such an honour for us to speak to you, and it's amazing. But I don't. I, we want to be conscious of your time. I do want to get your thoughts, if you don't mind, on the other thing during this lockdown period has been the potential merger of of, of WTN yep. and ATP. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I, I think that it's an interesting one. It's one that I, I mean, I think people don't realise how, uh, how big a thing this is because they're two separate companies. So it's like any company, um, if you're going to merge with another company, I think you have to be privy to all the details involved, all the finances involved, you have to, and, and that's, that's, that's the real world. That's in, in any business merger, any company merger, yeah. that's what's going to, to happen. So I would like to be privy to that um, before I make, you know, uh, a one way or the other, if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I think currently tennis does a good job of, I mean, like you, you touched on the, the women right now, if there was a sport, and, and I don't encourage um, crazy tennis parents because there's plenty of them out there, but if there's a sport that you had a girl and you said, oh, well, if there's a sport she's going to make money in, it'd be tennis. Uh, they're, they're consistently the top paid athletes in the world. So I think we're, I think definitely, you know, tennis is leading the way in, in, um, in, in being equal. Agreed. Um, does it mean that we have to merge tours. I'm neither here nor there right now because I just, I, I need to, I'm not, I'm not all for making a, a rash decision based on a tweet. Yeah. Um, I think that both sides have to benefit. 
you, you know, if both sides benefit, I'm all for it. Yeah. Um, there are things that we would have to, to, to look into further. I think that if, if the merger means more combined tournaments, I think that we have to be careful there because I don't think that, you know, there's a lot of tournaments that we play throughout the year that don't have the facilities. There's not many tournaments that have the facilities. You need a lot of facilities to be able to pull that off. Yeah. Um, obviously, financially, you want both sides to benefit. Speaking from a player's point of view, um, you know, we want our checks to remain the same and the girls probably want theirs to remain the same or, you know, we want them to, to have uh, equality there also. So I think that it's, it's one of those ones that we, we have to look at all the details and, and measure up whether it's not just good for the men's game, but also good for the women's game. Yeah. You know, um, it can't be one or the other. One side can't benefit more than the other. I think as long as it, it benefits both equally, yeah. Um, then I'm all for it. You know, I've grown up in a household full of women. So uh, I've learned um, that um, sometimes they can actually be a fair bit more useful than myself. So uh, <laughs> it's true. It's true. They, um, they do things a lot better than me. So look, I think that I'm not privy to the finances. I think in any company merge, um, that has to be one of the main things that gets taken into account. So it's beneficial on both sides. Uh, I'll never become privy to that. I'm not on any, um, yeah. you know, boards or, or councils or whatever. So uh, yeah, hopefully the, the right decision one way or the other gets made. Very good answer. Um, your experiences, a couple I'd love to just get your, your feeling on. You know, first one, we, we have to talk about the Roger Federer match this year. Yep. That's brilliant open. How was that from your eyes? And how, how was it to be a part of such an amazing match? Well, first of all, uh, it was in Australia. So the dynamic's a little bit different. You always want to play well in your home country. Um, Rod Laver Arena is only a, a court that I've actually played on once before. Right the warm-up was actually pretty cool. Um, I went out there to warm up and Roger had the same time and uh, Roger had Marit Safin warming him up and I had, I had Leighton Hewitt warming me up. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was kind of like spot the odd one out that doesn't have uh, the grand slam. So um, that was actually pretty cool. Uh, I felt very relaxed throughout that match. Um, For whatever reason, I sent him to, you know, most of the times I match up pretty well with Roger and obviously, it came down to the wire and, and you know, I, I, I had a really good chance to, to cause another upset in my home slam, which would have been really special. Yeah. Um, I've looked back on it, as you do. You look back on the match and I don't think, and I've replayed the match, I don't think that I did much wrong, even when I got into, you know, a winning situation. I think sometimes these top players... They're the top players for a reason. And sometimes they're just, they're really hard to finish off because they're bloody good. Yeah. I don't think I did much wrong to get myself in that position. I hit three really good passing shots. Yeah. Um, and I didn't think I did much wrong. And the good thing is there, I actually didn't feel nervous. And it was yeah. the same at the U S open. It was, uh, I think once you start feeling nervous, you, you stop having um, clarity in your mind and when you when you when you stop thinking clearly um you start to to make poor decisions so 
you need to have a clear mind to make good decisions. And I did feel as if I was thinking really clearly, look, I would have loved to have walked up to the line and served an ace or something. Yeah. Trust me, I would have loved that at eight five. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that's tennis. Um, you're bitterly disappointed when you finish the match. You've, you've yeah. gone out there for four and a half hours and um, you've left it all on the line. And the next day it hurts. It hurts a lot. Um, but on the flip side too, I'm a big believer in controlling the controllables. It's a bit of a mantra that I've always had. I'm going to go out there and control what I can control. Sometimes you don't really, it's not going to come off amazing. It's not going to come out of the middle the whole time. Um, I'm not going to play someone's reputation. I'm going to control what I can control. And I can control my effort that I bring on the court. I can control my physicality that I bring on the court. Um, I can control um, my tenacity that I bring on the court. So there's all these little things that I can control. And, and when I walked off the court and after a day, it, it, you know, day of hurt, um, a day of maybe self-pity, um, you, you can look at yourself and you can go, man, I, I gave that a crack. And that's been pretty much my whole career. I just, I just want to be someone that gives it a crack. And, uh, and that's what I did in that match. I, I went out there, um, back was up against the wall and I, and I gave it a real, real shake. And it's normal to feel disappointed because that's, that's sport and that's the emotions of sport. And that's why we love it. Um, because you do get some type of feeling, you get a great feeling when you win, when you lose, you, you get, you get these uh, feelings of disappointment, but you know, my, my, my family were proud of me. My miso was proud of me. Um, my mates were proud of me. And there was an element of satisfaction that I gave it a, a real, a real shake up. There was a, also an element of disappointment, but it's really important to, to be able to look at yourself. For me, that's the most important thing to be able to look at myself in the mirror after you get out of the shower and you say to yourself, man, I, I tried my hardest. Amazing. You, you don't realize it, but you, what you've just done there is you've just, you've just given me my perfect two minute clip at this Academy because <laughs> our, our, our whole philosophy is control the controllables. We have it everywhere. Yep. We have it everywhere yep. at the Academy. You know, I've actually done quite a lot of podcasts because some people challenge, challenge that saying, you yep. know, that it's not as simple as that. And I'm a big believer that an emotion isn't a controllable, you yep. know, because some people like to say, well, you can't control it. And, and I agree, you can't control an emotion, but you can control all the things that you've said. And that's yep. where the name of this podcast came from, Control the Corona. Yeah, so, yeah. I didn't even think, to be honest with you. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> it's definitely something that I... I've lived by and, and in pre-match interviews, it's something, it's, it's things that I've said. I think I even said it before I played Roger at the U S open. Um, yeah, look, there's so many things, not just in tennis, but in life that gets taken out of your hands. But, um, yeah, I think you do give yourself the best chance by, by doing just that. And, um, and I think that, yeah, at the end of the day, like I said, if you can look at yourself in the mirror and you can say, you know what? I did that. I gave it a crack. That was a, it was a good shift of work that I put in and I pulled up short. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think you can be pretty satisfied. Yeah. Well, you, you absolutely represent that John, you know, for, yeah. for me, you're the control, the poster boy, you know, that's, that's everything that, you know, I don't know you personally, but, but obviously watching your career from afar and being a, being a, a test, a tennis 
someone who's got so, so much passion for tennis to, to see everything that you do bring and and I'm sure when you reflect on your career that'll be the big thing that everyone will reflect about John Millman that he has done everything in his control in his power to get as far as he possibly can go and and there's no more ultimate success than that you know so, yeah. you know a, a big a big well done on that the, the second experience that we have to get your thoughts on is the ATP Cup because that yep. just I mean obviously for being a British being a British man watching Jamie Murray miss a backhand on top of the net yeah. uh, was, was difficult to watch and we actually spoke to Jamie on the podcast as well and Jamie was fantastic talking about that moment but how would that it seemed like a blast what a tournament huh? Yeah, look, I think that um, one thing that Tennis Australia does really well, and um, you won't hear complaints on this side from me, is they're, they're great at running an event. And I thought the yeah. ATP showcased that. Uh, any type of team competition, I think, is, is super exciting. Look, there, there are things about the ATP Cup I don't like. Um, I don't like the fact that it counts as an extra tournament, even though I was someone that benefited from it. I think that that's completely rubbish. I don't even like the fact that the ATP World Tour Finals count as an extra tournament. I think that's rubbish. Yeah. Um, I think that everyone should have the same amount of countable tournaments because, uh, in essence, I mean, that's what tennis is about. Um, some of us don't have access to certain finances or funding or... Um, you know, support teams, et cetera. But the one thing we should have is an equal opportunity to, to build up our ranking. And so I wasn't happy with that. And, and I was quite vocal about that. Yeah. Um, but look, as an event, it was awesome. Look, I, I love team competitions. I played a lot of, I played school tennis and it's something that, you know, a lot of kids who are still at school here in Australia, they won't play their school team tennis because, you know, they think they're too good for it or, um, or any of that. But I think that team tennis is awesome. So I love playing school tennis. I love playing for my German club. I love playing Swiss league. Um, and then obviously for me, um, the ultimate team competition is Davis cup. And yeah. look, the format's changed and I don't love the format change, but still the history that we've got in it. And, and the fact that you get to represent your country um, in a team environment is, is the absolute ultimate. So I think the more um, team competitions that we can have, I think is only a positive. We see the success of the Labor Cup also. Um, and, and ATP Cup adds to that. So I think that engages more fans, which I think is really important because we want to have a product that, that isn't the same week in, week out. And that's why when Grand Slams come around, it's a little bit different. Everyone loves it. We know about the history of it. And I think team competitions do that also. And I thought the ATP Cup, was really professionally done. There's always areas that we can improve, but I thought as a, as a starting point, it was, it was a lot of fun. It also helps when your team has a fair bit of success. And, and I thought our boys played some great tennis. Um, Alex was sensational. That match against Rafa was, I mean, when you think about it, I think people don't realize um, the first tournament of the year everyone's finding their feet a little bit to have that level and, and that quality match. I even thought the Dan Evans demon our match was brilliant yeah, um, to have that type of level um, early on. And, and for me, I'm a tennis lover and, a, and I'm a tennis admirer and I'm a, I'm a, I've got a real passion for, for our sports. So even sitting on the sideline and, and riding someone like demon um, point in point out is something that, you know, I just loved. 
and to watch that level was awesome. So I thought as a spectacle, it was, it was so good. I think there's a big future for it. Yeah. Yes, I would like to see a few of the things nutted out. I think the prize money was great for those guys. And I think that that's sufficient enough. I don't think we need to have an extra tournament. We can play for some points. I didn't really love the scaling points. Um, um, yeah, look, there's things that I think they could have done a little bit better. And I think initially it was to try to get it over the line yeah. and to, to appease the, the tournament side of the ATP. But as a spectacle, it was awesome. And like I said, we have to be inventive. And we have to be innovative. And we have to continually think of ways to, to get our product out there um, to, to entertain the public. And, and, and that's not just at an ATP level. Like I said, we got to get that product happening at the, the lower tier events at, at challenges and, and even futures also, and, and, and find different ways to, to get people involved, whether, um, uh, and look, I'm not, it's probably above my pay grade, but I, I believe that there are solutions out there where we can get more events like this. They don't have to be at the scale of the ATP cup. It doesn't, you know, that takes a lot of money to produce, but there are certain things that we can get out there to, to engage a, a wider audience. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know where, where to take it because there's, there's so many things, but the, the, my next, my next question and last question before we go to quick fire and it links into what you've just said. And also, I guess how well you've spoken today and I've, I've heard you in the past as well, John, and I do follow you. And, you know, I, I always think everything you say is absolute sense with rationale. What's next for you firstly, as a player, you know, and how, how do you go from someone who I guess is one of the lower seeds at a slam into, into the next level? You know, and I, I suppose if you answer that first and then I have one more question. Yeah, for me, look, I, I do feel as if I can get, higher uh in the with my ranking and and like i said um i the thing that interests me most about tennis is getting the most out of my game and i do feel as if there's there's areas and there's areas now when i go and train on monday um i get tomorrow off but when i go out there and train on monday there's areas that i want to work on that i think i can improve in my game um for me the big thing is 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 staying fit for a year like when you, it's, it's like you said, you scanned over my, my junior career. Um, we in the, in the, in the men's stuff, it might look like at times that I'm playing a full schedule. Um, but a lot of the times, uh, I am fighting my body last year. Um, I was playing, um, uh, with a plantar plate tear in my foot, which is, uh, really impacted me throughout the clay swing and into the grass swing so that's that's nearly three months of tennis where I literally I'm playing on one foot and I couldn't push up on my serve and when I take away that physicality I'm, I'm struggling but I still am winning matches and so therefore I have to keep going and and like I, I understand with tennis especially that level if you're taking time away from the game and you're missing out on months of tennis throughout the year you're going to lose your rankings so there's lots of little areas um for me, I think that if I can have a consistency throughout the year where my body holds me in good stead, then I'm going to get higher in the rankings. My career high was actually after that 2018 US Open. Um, and during my match against Roger in that, um, I tore my obturator. So that's uh, 
a muscle that goes from your hip to your groin. And um, yeah, quite a big, quite a substantial tear. I found out at Davis Cup after I got scans because it wasn't getting right. And, and so therefore, the back end of the year was completely impacted and, and you're still trying to play and people don't realize that. So when you cop in abusive messages from, from the guys that bet on you, it's um, only telling a little bit of the story. Um, during the Australian Open this year, I was playing in my match against Roger. I had, I had a grade, I actually tore it before the Australian Open started, but I turned it into a grade two tear of my calf muscle in my left leg. So um, if I can stay fit, I really do feel as if I can get a little bit higher up in the ranking. That's easier said than done because I bring quite a, a physical presence to my game and it's something that just goes hand in hand. I can't have my game without the, the physicality that I bring. Um, it just doesn't work. Yeah. So look, I'm constantly trying to, to work on my body. Um, I'm constantly, uh, you know, trying to fine tune that and, and find ways and, and also come up with, with training techniques that maybe to begin with, I'm not so comfortable with. I'm a guy that wants to hit a thousand and two balls. I just want to hit balls. Um, and if something's not working, I'll just keep doing it until I feel as if it is working. Yeah. Um, there are probably ways that I can probably train a little bit smarter, but yeah. it's kind of in me a little bit. I'm fighting the mental side a little bit to, to do that. So look, there's things that I think I can improve. There's things I can get better. That's for me is the biggest one. Yeah. Um, and if I, if I can do that, I, I do feel as if I can be putting myself to be seated in slams. Yeah. And, and at your level, so that's obviously a one to keep you on the court and to be able to ultimately yep. compete more and have more opportunities. At your yep. level, is your game your game? Or is there, is there work yep. and developments to make in your game? No, there's always, there's always small improvements to make. Now, look, I'm not going to be someone that is going to net rush. It's, at my age, it's just not going to happen and it doesn't give me the greatest chance of success. Can yeah. I incorporate a few more steel volleys into my game? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Um, tactically, can I be a little more astute? Can I, are there areas where I can maybe work in the line ball a little bit more? Um, yeah. Are there certain patterns on my serve that I'm not executing quite as well? So there's always different areas that you can be adapting and improving. I, I'm a big believer in that. I'm not a believer in technical changes. Um, yeah. I believe that you have what you've got when you're probably about 16, 17. Uh, that's my experience. And then I think that you refine that and make it as good as possible. So there's certain drills that I did because certain coaches or, or people were telling me, oh, that's going to break down at the next level. Well, then, to be honest with you, most of the time I'd think up of my own drills yeah. and, and I'd do it again and again and again where, where it wasn't going to break down, yeah. you know? Um, so I think that, that that's how you can make those improvements. I, I don't think – I've seen some players try to make big technical changes um, as they've, you know, gotten a little bit older. And I think that it creates indecision when you're playing and you want to be very proactive and reactive at the same time. You don't want to think as soon as you start thinking too much, yeah. um, you know, about what I'm doing on my backswing here and, and where my, uh, the angle of my yeah. racket head has to be. As soon as you start doing that, I think you're in a lot of trouble and I've seen a lot of people make that mistake. Yeah. But I do feel as if, Tennis is also a game about decision making, and yeah. you've got to you've got to be a problem solver. Yes. Okay. What's not working? Um, you know, out out wide to my back ends. 
um, I'm not strong on that outside leg. Um, do I need to change my grip to, to have a strong? Well, you know, at your age, probably not. But, but what you can do is um, you can work drills to get you stronger out there, yeah. you know, and repeat it again and again. Um, there's drills that I do that really sharpen me up through the middle of the court. So I feel as if people can't rush me, yeah. you know, and, and now I feel as if I can't be rushed. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's drills that, you know, um, I will do when, when someone's chipping at me and I'll put it in, in closed drills and stuff like that. And, and I feel as if now, um, you know, I played against you Rogers and stuff and, and they can slice all they want at me. And I feel very comfortable in the exchanges, yeah. you know, um, I, I just feel as if there's certain areas that you can do uh, yeah. and certain things that you can work on to refine your skills. Yeah. Um, and so that's constantly evolving. It's, it's exactly what we talked about at the start. Tennis is continually yeah, yeah. evolving and improving. Um, you've got to jump on and you've got to keep on improving your game um, bit by bit to, to, to maximize uh, your potential. And how much do you use data and video analysis in order to kind of find those little finer details that you're refining? Yeah, look, I, I probably am, am more of a visual learner. Yeah. Um, there are certain things I look, especially on my opponents for, uh, um, in terms of data, uh, in terms of maybe some patterns that I'm, that I'm noticing and I'll use data with that. But most of the time I'm a bit more of a visual learner. So, um, you know, I'll go and, and watch footage of, of what I've been doing and, yeah. and, and I feel as if that helps. Yeah. Uh, so for me, you got to find out what, yeah, where you, um, where you learn the most. Are you a visual learner? If you're a visual learner, well, go out there and watch some footage. Um, for me, that's what works for me. So find out what works for you yeah. And then try to implement it because that's how you're going to get the most out of your game. Yeah, very good. And what's not that I'm trying to wish your career away. You're still a young mm. cock. You've got plenty, plenty time left. Yeah. What, what's next for John Millman after his tennis playing career? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I've done a bit of commentary at the Australian Opens and stuff. Um, I don't mind it. I, I'm not totally convinced that that's um, what I what I want to do. Um, I would like to um, do some more studies, further studies um, with the business administration side of things. And I'd like that to stay in, you know, obviously I've have a real passion for sports. So I'd love to, to get into the sports administration side of things. Yeah. Um, whether that's in tennis, I'm unsure. Um, I do feel as if we could do a better job, especially here. Um, of I don't know. Uh, preparing people for life after tennis yeah. um, because I think it's quite a daunting thing. Yeah. Um, will I stay involved in the game? Perhaps. Uh, I do want to stay involved in sport because I love sport and I yeah. love tennis. So if, it, if, if that works out, it's great too, but you also got to find something that pays the bills as you know. Um, so look, I, I like the business administration side. I like to problem solve. Um, and I like to think that I've, um, reached a quite a good level in, in my sport um, that I have an understanding of, of performance and, and, yeah. and what it takes to, to get the best out of not just yourself, but certain systems in place um, to do that. So yeah, look, that, that's probably where my interest lies. Who knows if, if that'll eventuate, but 
uh, at the moment. That's what I'm thinking. CEO of the ATP. I can see it. <laughs> you have I to can see it. They don't, they don't have too many Australian employees. It's all the, uh, it's all the English people that get the jobs. <laughs> well, not, not, not English people. And Americans. <laughs> now Italians. I have to be Italian. I have to start speaking uh, a bit of Italiano. Uh, and I'll tell you what, my Italian's not good. <laughs> the, way, the way that you speak and the way that you put yourself across and, and the, the way that you, the values that you just bring to the table on a, on a day-to-day basis because people can lead in lots of different ways, but you're leading in everything that you do. Um, that is something that I do. I do strongly believe this, that you are someone that our sport needs. You know, I think, I think you, you know, obviously you've got your playing to take care of, um, but having, having your input and the fact that you do know the levels, you, you, you have the respect to continue knowing the levels and understanding it, you know, and, and then you also know the level of beating the, the very best. So, so to have that kind of, that range of, of understanding, but also passion for it, it's exactly what our sport needs right now. It doesn't, it doesn't need people that only know the top end, you know, it, it, it needs people and it needs voices of people that know um, all of the ends. So that's, you get our vote, maybe by then. This, this podcast was a lockdown. We started it through lockdown, but the demand's been there for us to continue it and we've been loving doing it. So maybe it'll be a massive podcast in a couple of years and we'll be able to campaign for you. Um, there you go. <laughs> um, last, last quick fire questions, John. Really quick fire. Yeah, we're, we're going to bring you into the quick fire round now, Johnny. But okay. before we do that, I, before we do that, Dan, I just have to, I have to shadow what Dan said again. It's been absolutely amazing listening to you, John. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Sitting back here, getting the insights of your journey as a tennis player, the attributes, the characteristics that you have. I'm a big admirer of watching you play. I love the way you talk. Um, I just, I think it's, amazing for anybody any tennis enthusiast that's listening into this podcast to listen to what you're what you, how you talk about the game so before we do go into this quick fire massive massive thank you it's been unbelievable no, no i appreciate it i think uh i think uh, the more we can talk about tennis and and more we can get the stories out there the the, the better for the game so not a problem at all Top man. Here we go. It's quick fire time, Johnny. Okay. I hope you're fast. Okay. I'm nervous. And are you ready? I'm ready. Server return. Return. Forehand or backhand? Backhand. Grass or clay? I gotta go Wimbledon. I gotta go grass. Just because of Wimbledon. Five sets or three sets? Nah, five sets. Injury timeout or not? No, no injury timeout. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup any day of the week. And the last one, one rule that you would change in tennis? Oh, look, probably the injury timeout one. To be honest with you, I think that it's a, a bit of a rubbish rule. And that's not to say that I haven't done, had an injury timeout, but... Uh, it, it is there, but yeah, look, I'd say the injury timeout. I, I think that once you engage in a battle in, on the court, then you shouldn't have to go. And also, I'll be pretty annoyed if they allow on-court coaching. 
I know that that's not a rule they yeah. have yet, but so much of tennis is also... I, I'm a big believer in encouragement out on court and I'm someone that uses my box. I, I give them fist pumps and I find people in the crowd that I'll try to soak up their energy. But um, look, to have a coach run on court and tell you what to do, I, I think that that kind of defeats the purpose of the game. I'm really great. I'm with you on that, John. I've, I've been in a, in a couple of WTA tournaments for players I've worked with. And it's actually, it's, it's amazing how it's used. The first time I went on there, very quick story. I might not even use this in the podcast, but just a very quick story. I got, I got called on by this, it was a young girl I was playing, and she was playing against Donna Vekic. And Vekic had used it in the, in the first set and at that time, I was kind of looking at my girl saying, well, this is probably a time to get me. I, 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 she was like 4-1 down. And I felt I had like a bit of information to give her. Then she was 3-2 up in the second. And she was playing well. She turned the momentum of the match. Vekic calls her coach on. And yeah. then my girl looks over and calls me on. And I come on and I, and I, and I said to her, why do you call me on? She went, because that, because that bitch has called her coach on again. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. So, and I was like, how's things? How are you feeling? She went, my forehand's, my forehand's shit. And I said, I said, you three two up. You're playing great. Playing great. Goes to four all in that set. Misses four forehands in the net at four all. Yeah. <laughs> completely talked herself into hitting shit forehand. Yeah. <laughs> Look, tennis is just so, so much mental. Um, a lot of it's, you know, figuring it out yourself. So, um, look, I don't see the need for it. I'm, I'm, not the, uh, I'm not in love with it. But I think that it's, it's starting to trend in that direction that we'll end up having it. But maybe after I'm done. Yeah. John, you're an absolute legend, mate, honestly. I mean, for us, we've been so excited even, you know, the, the fact that you've, you've come on the show I, I will be listening to that again. I can't wait to edit it to get to hear your pearls again. Um, I can't wait to get it out there. And I'm sure everyone's going to absolutely love it. A massive thank you from us, honestly. And, Thanks a million, man. Not a problem, guys. Not a problem. Thank uh, you. You're an absolute, Johnny, you're an absolute legend, man. Keep rocking it, man. I want to <laughs> see you win a slam, brother. Go <laughs> win a slam, man. Legend. <laughs> I'll keep at it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that as much as, as we did speaking to John. Uh, at one point, I, I genuinely thought we were talking to the Barack Obama of the tennis world. Um, what an inspirational guy who's squeezing every last bit of energy out of, of, of this sport um, on a, on a day-in, day-out basis. It, it's a message that people in business, people in life can take uh, really let's let's share this podcast out far and wide um, some of those messages can just it might just inspire one youngster uh, it might inspire two it might inspire somebody who isn't quite sure what direction they want to go in life and you know they hear that and they hear the determination and they hear what he's been through and what he puts in every day to squeeze every last bit out of his himself and, and it might just inspire someone. So let's get it out far and wide. Um, as I always say, a big thank you for your support. Um, keep doing your thing for us with subscribing, liking, sharing, rating, reviewing. Uh, it, it helps the podcast get out into people's hands. 
that's not for us that's for for everybody else that is going to benefit from listening to these so a, a big thank you for your support i'm dan kiernan my co-host john mcgann for the last time wear control the corona balls thank you